Welcome back to Extra Credit, a TransUnion podcast for card and banking. This is Josh Turnbull. I'm joined with Craig LaChapelle, and uh, we we welcome you back. So, Craig, you and I just wrapped up a week at the TransUnion Financial Services Summit, which uh, I think you you probably feel as I do. It was great to be back in person after two years of having that being a virtual event, and always look forward to that, both for the the customers that we're able to see face-to-face in the conversations, as well as the research that TransUnion does leading up to that. And um, a couple of things that I thought were were so interesting this year, one, looking in the credit card space in particular, where many of our listeners are focused, and some fascinating work that's been done looking at liquidity measures on uh, that are available on the credit report through credit data and the predictive power of some of those liquidity measures and being able to anticipate folks who who will do well with credit line increases and folks that are headed towards delinquency, just some, some really fascinating stuff. And then <clears throat> apropos of the time we're going to spend with Karen and Josh today on financial inclusion and access, a really interesting study looking at uh, some of the insights around the folks who are entering the credit space for the first time, as well as just the size and scale of that population. So if you weren't able to join us for the Financial Services Summit, but want to see some of those pieces, certainly encourage you to uh, to reach out and uh, some fascinating stuff that was shared this year. Josh, totally agree. And I got to say, I love being uh, together with uh, a lot of industry stakeholders in person. Uh, for the first time in a long time. So now, Josh, why don't we introduce our guest and dive into their views on financial inclusion in more detail? Let's do it. So, Karen, Josh, welcome to Extra Credit, the TransUnion podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited because this is like old home day for the three of us. You and I used to work together for a number of years and have known each other for a, a long, long time. And before we dig in, maybe ask the two of you just to introduce yourself and the organizations that you're with, that people are unfamiliar with those, and a little bit about what you do there before we dig into it. I'm Karen Andres. I'm the Director of Policy and Market Solutions, as well as the Project Director of the Retirement Savings Initiative at the Aspen Institute Financial Security Program. Um, And for those unfamiliar, um, the Aspen Institute is a, a policy studies organization, some might call it a think tank. Um, founded in uh, 1949, and we tackle the issues facing society. And what we focus on at FSP is what the name suggests, making financial security in America a top national priority. Excellent. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Josh, how about you? Yeah, I am uh, Joshua Sledge. I am the Senior Director of Incubation at the Filing Research Institute. We are what we call a think and do tank in the credit union space, focused on helping credit unions to grow and to make a positive impact in their community. And so in my role, I get an opportunity to take some of those interesting questions or solutions we're uncovering in the research and actually put them to to the test in some pilot work with credit unions in our membership to see if there's a there there and real potential in some of the new solutions we're seeing coming about. So happy to be here. So Josh and Karen, first time I'm meeting you, great that you're on the show, really appreciate it. Um, I think what we'll do is we'll transition into our initial segment where Josh likes to torture our guests with trivia. So I'll turn it over to Josh and his chamber. Thank you, Craig. So Karen and Josh, you both have spent a lot of your lives in Michigan and and reside there now. So Craig and I thought we would just uh, see kind of how, how well you know your home state with a couple of multiple choice questions here. And you can decide whether you want to compete against each other or collaborate on these. So First question, Michigan ranks second to Alaska in what? And these are multiple choice. 
A, snow tires sold per capita. B, heating oil consumption. C, tons of arriving international cargo. Or D, miles of shoreline. So I do know, I'm just going to give a caveat. I'm actually born and raised in Ohio. For what it's worth, I do now live in Michigan. I have been here for like 12 years. But I know, Josh, that the border crossing between Windsor and Detroit, I believe, is the busiest in the world by the um, trade volume. So I don't know, like C is calling to me, but this also could be a trick about the shoreline because of all the lakes. What do you think? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I'm, I'm trying to think yeah, if you stretched out that shoreline as a match kind of California and some of those, those other states. But I like the idea. I think you're right. The, the Canadian uh, uh, Canadian U.S. traffic uh, is a little heavier than I think people realize. I, I think that's that's probably the right answer. It was shoreline. Oh, go it your gut. <laughs> was it the inland lakes? Like, was it the inland lakes that did it? I, I think so. I think so. That combined with the Great Lakes. Yeah, I don't know any of these. I just find these. So, um, all right. Question number two. I'm a lifelong Michigander, so this is uh, this is I got I got to get this next one. Or uh, they're that's right. That's right. Show that you paid attention in fourth grade when it was Michigan <laughs> history. Uh, which of these famous Michi Michiganders was actually born in Michigan? A. Louis Chevrolet. B. Charles Lindbergh. C. Malcolm X. D. Jimmy Hoffa. That is C. Malcolm X. He was he was uh, born in Mason, Michigan. Uh, this one I'm pretty sure about. I, I defer. I support Josh. I so what I saw had him born somewhere else in Nebraska, and it had Charles Lindbergh. But uh, you know, you probably I will go back to the sources. He grew up in Michigan. He got the nickname Detroit Red, um, but I, I don't know if he was born there. So you may be right on that. <laughs> Who knows? We'll, 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 we'll claim both of them. Yeah. Lindbergh and Malcolm X. <laughs> I thought you were going to try to trick us with Custer. Because Custer, General Custer, had a long stint, I believe, in the state, if not from here. And that is a dirty Michigan secret. So. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. No, you didn't go there. No. Well, and I'm, I'm saving you over um, the final question being on the, the speculating on where Jimmy Hoffa is now. So the third question, after an election held by the Audubon Society in 1931, what became the official state bird of Michigan? A, the robin, B, the black-capped chickadee, C, the downy woodpecker, D, the American yellow warbler. So I have some intel here from a children's book called Little Michigan that I've been reading to my boys since they were born. And that book claims that the robin is the state bird, which is admittedly boring. Josh, what do you think? It is the Robin. I know that one for sure. I've got uh, um, some family that opened up a, a wine bar called the Stamped Robin, uh, in, in the, the in the name for, for for its Michigan roots. So that one, I'm I'm pretty sure. I'm sure. Pretty sure about. Ding nice. ding ding ding. Nice. Correct. Come through, Robin. <laughs> one for three. That's rough. <laughs> it's about yeah, we got, par we for gonna, course. Yeah, yeah, two Josh for is, three. Two for three. We're yeah. <laughs> I, I tell you, it's par for course in Josh's trivia tests. I'll take it. <laughs> Someday, Craig, someone's going to turn the tables and you and I are going to have to answer these questions. It's not going to be pretty. Someday. All right. Let's get a little serious and, and really dive into your background, your expertise, and, and really why um, we thought you guys would be a great guest on the show. Where we're going to, what we'd like to do now is ask you three, four questions and get you to opine on, you know, key trends and what do you think is important as it speaks to financial inclusion. So I'll go first. 
Um, you've both been at this a long time. You've seen the labels change regarding financial institutions, unbanked, underbanked, financial access, and now it's financial inclusion. So, you know, there's been changes in the terminology, but how is a, our thinking uh, or our approach different today than it was 10 or 15 years ago? And when I say our approach, I mean the industry's approach and why. I'm happy to start there. You know, I think a lot of it is you've seen this change in kind of the words we use to describe the challenges we're trying to solve is has been um, a function of the fact that we realize the problem is a lot bigger than we had initially thought. I know uh, when I first started doing this work with Karen at the Center for Financial Services Innovation, we were really focused on this idea of unbanked and underbanked and quickly realized that whether you have a bank account or not does not mean that you are okay, uh, that things are going well in your life. And as we started to expand and really look at that, you see that there are so many different uh, angles that really affect people's financial lives. And across all of those uh, really adds to this notion of financial health and how well people are doing. And so I think part of the expansion is, has been uh, trying to figure out what is the problem. Uh, and more and more, as I think we've realized, it's bigger than we thought. Um, uh, you know, we've seen the, the language really adapt to, uh, to, to kind of fit that bigger scope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say I think of it like I always gravitate back to an analogy about like, let's just say you're in your house and you're at the at, you're at a you're at a faucet, a tap in the bathroom. And whether or not that faucet works depends upon two things. It depends upon the source of the water. Is there enough water? Is it steady pressure of water? And do the pipes in your house A exist and B work? Are there holes in the pipes? Are they rusty? And so in this way, it's sort of like the flow. If, if money is the flow of water in a house and the plumbing, the pipes um, are, are the, the accounts, the services, the tools that you use to manage that flow of money. And I think you can have breakdowns in plumbing for either or both reasons. Um, and what's really, I think, unsatisfying is that you really have to work on both, right? We need solutions that increase the flow, that make the flow steadier, more reliable, more resilient in the face of systemic shocks, and we need plumbing. There are whole households in America that have massive gaps in the plumbing, and that matters, right? That's the un unbanked, the, you know, credit invisible, right? I think financial increasingly financial inclusion isn't just the bank account, right? The bank account is a critical core first step, but also access to credit. Also, you know, there's some workplace tools about emergency savings, retirement savings, certain forms of insurance. It's a broader bucket of tools than just the bank account, but you've got to have well-functioning, affordable tools in all of those categories, and the flow has to be enough. So unfortunately, it's one of those like wicked problems where no one actor is going to solve this on their own. On that note, Karen, one of the the things I wanted to ask you both about is, you know, this podcast is primarily listened to by folks at banks or credit unions, and and I'm thinking about a meeting that uh, Josh, you, and Karen and I were in, man, 10, 15 years ago, and Ellen Seidman, who was the uh, the director of the OTS a long time ago, and and was talking with us, got got pretty animated and said, you know, you you don't solve a you don't solve an income problem with a credit product. And so thinking about the roles that banks or credit unions play in that scenario you just described with the plumbing analogy, Karen, you know, what is it or, or how do you talk to institutions and in thinking about how they kind of best contribute to this larger issue that you described? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take the uh, first stab at that. I'm really curious what Josh thinks um, being so close to so many 
financial institutions who play this role. But I think we need a broader set of of institutions and financial services providers to see themselves as as part of a financial inclusion or financial exclusion solution, right? Financial inclusion isn't just bank, banking plus. And I mean, I say that like insurance, retirement savings, those folks need a seat at the table if we're talking about ultimately an outcome that we care about. I think we kind of, in our zeal, our righteous zeal to go to outcomes and say the bank account can't do it all. Let's look at all the problems and let's focus on the outcome. We did kind of skip over the fact that we still have like, what is it, seven, eight million people who are unbanked. And that really, really matters as we saw in the pandemic, right? When you can't get aid to people because they don't have that core transactional account to put it into and all the money that leaks out to check cashers and payday lenders, um, like that really does matter. And I think we need to push a little harder into what are some of the reasons that people don't have a bank account, choose not to be banked, have been banked in the past and aren't now. What, who else do we need at the table if it's not going to be the mega banks closing the gaps? And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Who else needs to step into the breach and what is the role of different institutions? And then the final thing I'll say is that I've been so fortunate to get to spend so many years of my career thinking about the plumbing part of it, the accounts, the tools, the innovation. And now the past three years, looking more at the policy side, we need voices in Washington. We need companies uh, who have this incredible visibility into the financial lives of their customers to raise their voice in a policy context, because um, not only is there, are their insights and data really powerful, but just their voice in a political context is powerful. And um, I think institutions like JPMC with the in the data that they have from the Institute, others who are, ha who are forming policy centers and raising their voice, I think we shouldn't discount that as a critical lever to drive, to close some of those gaps, not only in access, but in, in usage and outcomes too. Yeah, and I'll say to you know I, I love that quote, um, Josh. You know the the um, you can't solve an income problem with credit. I think that that that's so true, particularly when you're looking at uh, kind of small dollar credit and some of the, those opportunities. And I think there's one big thing that banks and credit unions can do. It's it's help people know what the difference is. What what kind of problem are you having? Are you currently having a income problem or are you currently having a credit problem? I think oftentimes. When you add in just the compounding income volatility and, and already many people living paycheck to paycheck, it's difficult to know if you're borrowing because you can't afford it or you just need to tie yourself over to that that next moment. And I think uh, oftentimes that's when you see people reach for short-term solutions uh, to a long-term problem, right? That, that the, the real problem is you don't have enough, right? Or, or there's some broader systemic challenges in your, your financial life. I think that's where especially as you see fintechs coming into the fore and oftentimes coming to disaggregate you know, take apart all the different pieces of your financial life that where banks and credit unions in particular can play a role in helping people kind of bring that picture back together and saying, how can we really help you improve that overall and really look at all sides? Um, and so, you know, whether that's using the, some of the transaction data you have to help people realize that, you know, you're continuing to, to borrow or your income and outcome outflows just don't match up, or it's connecting people to the kind of products and services that would be a better fit for them than what they're using. I think kind of getting that holistic view and really approaching uh, individual at that level uh, is really key. And I think it's a real differentiator for, for, again, banks and credit unions that they can say, we know you, especially credit unions. We are part of your community. We care about you. Let's look at the broader context you're living in. Let's look at the broader context of your financial life and put those decisions within that frame and figure out how we can be that longer term partner. No, that's super helpful. And beyond the what products I'm, I'm hanging on the hooks to sell you, just about the relationship and what that brings to it too. Exactly. I think it's really exciting too, um, the way that 
both I think in the retail space and in the, the benefits, the workplace benefits space, I think we're we're getting closer to that world where AI and data aggregation and permissioning can allow for a really personalized experience that helps solve, I think, some of those core problems around decision making, right? I think that what I'm saying isn't a financial education solution. It's a like it's a fundamentally difficult thing to evaluate. What do I do with my next dollar? Do I put my next dollar into emergency savings? Do I put it into retirement savings? Do I pay down my credit card debt? Do I pay down my student loan debt? Do I make an extra payment on my mortgage? Like these are very complicated questions. And, you know, we have tech that can that can give you the right answer. Um, but how can it be customized, you know, to me, Karen, and my situation? So I hope I hope that's where things are going to Josh's point about the reaggregation. Like we got into so many silos. Like, I have an app for that times 90 on my phone, mm -hmm. right? Like, um, which is also by the way, true in policy. We have we have an agency for that and a policy or 20 for that too, which is part of the problem. We need to re-aggregate these things and make the right decision, either the easy decision or the non-decision, because we've maybe just automated it. So Karen, I actually have a question specific to the Aspen Institute. Uh, I read recently that the Aspen Institute is calling on the Biden administration to establish a presidential council on a national financial inc inclusion strategy. Mm -hmm. Why are they doing that? And what will this accomplish that won't happen naturally? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So the United States is one of the only developed nations on planet Earth that does not have a financial inclusion strategy, um, sort of a plan for closing all of those gaps and for ensuring that those, the usage of those tools, financial products, services, and tools ultimately leads to beneficial outcomes for, for Americans. Many developing nations across the world are way ahead of us in that regard. And I think it's so critical here because of that siloization we were just talking about, right? We've got multiple agencies across the U.S. government making decisions that deeply influence people's financial lives, right? Um, in multiple different ways. And um, that's only on the public sector side and the private sector side, same, right? And so what we don't have in the US is a shared set of metrics that would allow us to evaluate like what is the state of the union on on financial well, whether you wanna say financial well-being, financial health, financial security, we all know it's a very similar set of, of indicators. How can, can we set as a North Star that we should have that goal as a society and we should part of the measure of the health of our economy? It shouldn't just be macro GDP or unemployment rate, but also what's going on kind of at that household level. And we don't think that um, we're going to get there to that sort of shared vision unless there is a, unless there is a, a strategy. Uh, so I think the shared goal is is sort of part A. Um, part B is I think that there's a um, a concrete set of things that the federal government can do across banking, payments, credit, insurance, public benefits, right? Um, retirement savings. These things live at DOL. They live at Treasury. They live at HUD. They live at you know USDA. Um, there are specific things that can be done to improve the way Americans access and use and reap the benefits of financial products and tools. And so having an organized policy framework, ultimately arriving at a shared policy framework, I think would help us 
achieve some of the goals that we have and also help us help us be competitive as a nation, right? I think this is an infrastructure issue for the US, just like roads and bridges. And I think that ultimately the 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 ability of American households to uh, to be resilient in the face of shocks and to have those tools that they need is 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 important for our sort of long term um, like the health of our economy in a lot of ways. So so anyway, that's to say, I think the commission we're we're calling for a, a commission on 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 financial inclusion um, as a way to arrive at a set of recommendations and kind of that shared north star with the public and the private sector together. Thanks, Karen. That was a great response. Appreciate it. And I'm excited that TU has signed on as one of the the signatories of your letter to to call we for that commission. TU has signed on, right? It's like a wild list. If you look at the diversity of the organizations on that list, and I, well, since we we put the letter out a few weeks ago, we had like 38 signatories. We got up to 60 within two days, and we just got like 10 more today. Like it's, I think it's just, I think it's resonating with a lot of people um, that we, it's time for us to actually call this out for the problem it is, and also like elevate financial security, health and well-being as a priority. And Josh wanted to ask you, so Filene recently, you you specifically at Filene have stood up an incubator focused on really honing in on specific products or interventions that credit unions can employ to to really think about improving member financial health. And, and that's another one where, where TransUnion is happy to be working with Filene and, and doing that. But wondering if you can share a little bit about um, you know, why you're doing that and, and what you expect to see from that work. Yeah, we're really excited about this. And this is, um, as you mentioned, some work that TransUnion is supporting and we're doing in partnership with our, our friends at the Financial Health Network. But we've been calling it the, the Remixing the Value Proposition uh, Incubator. And it really came out of some conversations. You know, I've been at Filene for about 18 months. And a lot of the original conversations I was having just to get acclimated with the credit union space and some of our key partners was just to kind of hear what was top of mind. And you'd hear these kind of very tactical things, core conversions, this, that, or the other. And then there'd be these asides of, well, if we're even around in 20 years, and it kind of felt like, whoa, 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 what do, what do we mean? And I think it's really a recognition that the financial services landscape is changing. It's becoming more competitive. We're seeing that the way people interact with their financial services, you know, going to the digital channels and more players coming in there is really putting a lot of pressure on, on credit unions to, to step up. And the key point is, well, what can we do that others can't? You know, as, as, as you know, digital is always going to have to be something that, you know, it's table stakes. You got to make sure you're living up to consumer expectations. But where can credit unions really lead and stand on their front foot and, and, and compete in an effective way? And really, really believe that a lot of that is in by embracing what you are, a cooperative, a, a, a financial institution that is really built with its members at the core. And so how, can you build those types of business models and innovations that really focus and put the financial health of members and communities at the forefront uh, as a way of standing out from the pack and really building that defensible position. So a few ideas we're in the process right now of is doing some landscape research and thinking about what some of those concepts can be, and I'll, I'll put a few of them out. One, we've had some really great conversations and seen some interest amongst credit unions around uh, subscription-based uh, uh, models instead of you know charging someone for every individual product. How can you essentially kind of give that that notion of a membership a new spin by thinking about a all-in once a month fee that people pay? I mean, number one, we're just seeing trends continue to move there. You can now get a subscription to tacos from Taco Bell, no lie. Um, so you? you can get a subscription for just about anything you want. So how does this, you know, it adapts this consumer trend, but it also speaks to, especially when you go to underserved consumers, a need for consistency, transparency. I know I'm going to pay one thing and I can get what the, my needs there. It helps to build trust with, uh, with uh, the credit unions and members as well. So can you build a model that uh, has a really unique set of benefits 
for a particular community, for a particular member, and use that subscription model to give them some, some transparency. Uh, we've been thinking about the affordable housing issue. Again, something that's very local in the same way that credit unions are. And you can really go soup to nuts there, all the way from we're helping to provide affordable mortgages for people to get those first-time homes, but you can also be supplying in, uh, credit for developers and, and others in your neighborhood to actually build that stock of affordable housing in places where it's low. And even to the local policy and zoning issues, do you want to get involved there and, and really use your voice as an advocate for how you can solve those. Uh, and the last one I'll point out that I'm really excited about looking at is uh, what we've been calling essentially kind of cooperative resilience. And, and we know that for many people, they're just one, was it a $400 shock away, right, from, from really being in, in, in a tough spot and facing a financial emergency. Cooperatives, the whole notion of a cooperative is that by working together, you remove that risk, right? We, we can kind of insure ourselves by working together. How do you build hardship funds? How do you build ways for cooperatives and, and members to connect with one another, uh, for people to be able to solve some of those challenges and issues, again, using some of those local partners that fintechs and others just aren't going to be able to do in the same way that credit unions can. So we really think that this notion of continued credit union success and, and uh, competitiveness is really rooted in uh, anchoring themselves in those core uh, tenets and, and the structure of what credit unions are, which is all about helping members live their best financial lives and helping to improve the financial health of communities. No, we're we're really excited about being able to to go alongside Filene for this work. That's that's great, and I I did want to know. So I'm I'm clearly living under a rock with the Taco Bell news, but is the seven layer burrito included in that, or is that? Yeah, a... it's it, it's it's one taco a day. We get one taco a day oh, uh, okay. for ten dollars, ten dollars a month. So you know, <laughs> a lot of tacos for ten dollars a month, right? Pretty is good. It? I mean, you find, you know, what is that? About thirty-five cents a taco or so. You know, depending on the depending on the month, it's you can do worse. Good thing this I isn't would, a public health podcast. Exactly. And I was just going to say, I would look so good at the end of that month. Yeah. <laughs> okay, everyone. Thanks for joining us for part one of this episode. We will be dropping part two very shortly, so stay tuned. <laughs>